0: What I want to share with you today is something about the credibility of the Bible that goes beyond or actually augments the factual things about what the Bible says. Why should you trust it for your life? It might tell you a bunch of stuff that happened in an ancient time in a place you'll never visit, but why does it matter to you credibly, not just existentially, no, why does it make me feel good, but why is it actually credible in an existential way? Why does it stick? in your life, why is it the most influential book in the history of humanity? Why is it still, after 3,500 years plus, the most widely read, best-selling book of history? Why is that? You look at the Bible, and you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it says, all scripture is, God breathed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what's interesting about that phrase in 2 Peter 3.16, where it talks about Scripture being breathed out by God, I want to focus on what it means for it to be breathed out by God. And I don't mean the theological discourse in what you know, special revelation actually means and how revelation works. I mean the poetry and the profundity of it being breathed out by God. That's a very intimate sense, statement. You know what could have been said here, what Paul could have said in Second 2 Timothy. All scripture is dictated by God. All scripture is delivered by God. Those are very sterile words. He doesn't use the sterile words. He uses the poetry of saying it's all breathed out. This is the kind of language that was used about how God gave life to Adam. He breathed into him of his spirit. This is an intimate word and it's a poetic word and it's very, very vibrant. What I wanna share with you is some of that. You see, oftentimes people think of the Bible as this sort of dusty collection of laws and stories that tell us what not to do lest we anger this bearded guy who throws lightning at the earth. Sort of confusing God and Yahweh and Zeus somehow, but we do that somehow. (laughs) But the words of the Bible are actually as vibrant as any motion picture you could see or any painting you could see. You know, we have this phrase, uh, a picture's worth a thousand words. You've heard, of, you've heard this phrase, and sometimes it's true. Sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words, but sometimes a phrase is worth a million pictures. The Bible is the word communicated to us, can give us truths that you can't capture on film, that you can't capture in a painting. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Alexander Pope, a wonderful poet, he was talking about the miracle that Je- where Jesus turned the water into wine at the village of Cana, at the wedding of Cana. And he points this out. He says, you know, you have this discussion about the water turning into wine. And then there's been paintings about it. You see paintings where someone's turning over the water jug and it starts off clear and at the end it's actually, you know, sort of this reddish, purplish color that wine would be back in those days and that's what you have. It's a nice painting and it's kind of cool the way it, it, it describes it. But it doesn't actually describe to you what happened. Alexander Pope's words describe it better than a painting does. This is how he describes it the conscious water saw its master and blushed. That's infused with, you can't capture that on film. It's infused with meaning. It's infused with meaning, and I think this is the subtle beauties of the Bible as we begin to engage. I don't mean read. I think it's not up to us to read the Bible. It's up to us to engage the Bible. It's an active process where you actually engage it when you read it, whether you're a skeptic or you're a Christian. And I've seen plenty of skeptics engage the Bible, and they duke it out with it quite a bit, only to find themselves, like me, on the receiving end of, my goodness, that was definitely worth it. That was truth right there, because of the subtle beauties that you find in it. I think one of the things that we miss often, when we think of Bible reading as a chore, as opposed to an encounter, is that we miss these subtle little beauties that really give us the enjoyment of what it see, means to see this poetry. So what I wanna point out to you is a couple of things as we talk about what it means to demystify the Bible. Two benefits, two things that naturally occur when we actually engage with the Bible and see its beauty for what it actually is. The first thing we get is that we find out who God is. It seems obvious. And the second thing is we find out who we are. And then there's the culmination of those two things and what that means for us. So I want to point out some of the subtle poetry once again. When you look at the Bible and you find out what is it saying about who God is, it obviously says God is the creator of the universe. He's the judge. He's the righteous one. He's the one who gives grace. All these wonderful superlatives about who God actually is. But there are some subtleties in there that I think we often miss because we're too caught up in the West especially in the propositional truths. You know, I'm, I'm from the Middle East. And we often convey things through story and through subtlety of language. I love the way language actually weaves its way through our lives and gives us truths that we otherwise couldn't get. And sometimes in the West, and I'm very Western as well. I was born in the United States, but I come from a Middle Eastern background. So I have these two competing things where I'm very Western. Just give me the propositional truth. If you give me the argument, if A, then B, if B, then C, A, therefore C, give me that. I want it straightforward. But then also the Middle Eastern part of me wants to see a parable, wants to see a story, wants to see a subtle illustration blossom right in front of me. And I think in the West, we're a little too much on the give me the, un, the, 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 the unfiltered, unvarnished truth. That's want to know what the truth actually is. We're kind of going away from that now in the West in the most part, but we still think we want that. Um, and in the East, we want just story. The Bible actually melds East and West together and gives us propositional truths in the form of story but there's some subtleties there as well. So for example, if you want to know who God is, what is God like, you can read the, out, the, the, the obvious statements. You know, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and all these wonderful things. But there are some subtleties captured in there. Some beauties that are captured, ironically, in the most dull parts of the Bible. And I'll borrow a, a, an illustration that Ravi often gives. Have you ever tried to read Leviticus and Deuteronomy straight through? You ever try to do that? It's, it's not exactly the most thrilling thing in the whole world. Your tassels have to have, your, your, your cloaks have to have this many tassels and no more. It has to have this kind of thread and no other. The arc has to be this high and no higher. The, the temple has to have this kind of you know, thing and no further and this, this wide and all this stuff. You're like, why in the world do I care about what kind of wood this is made out of? Why is this important? Do you know why this is important? Because if God cares this much about the clothes you wear, How much more of a masterpiece are you on the inside? God is talking to you and to me about the gloriousness of creation, about the value of all the things around us that we use to worship him. How much more is this temple, this body, worse to him than these things that he gives details for? That's why we take from the scriptures these things about how high things have to be, and what kind of meat you have to eat, and you can't have dairy and meat at the same time from the kosher things, all these things being symbolic and were meant for the people of Israel that were once, once they were fulfilled in Christ, that doesn't mean that those things were no longer, or those were meaningless before. It meant that all the meaning that was infused in those things is now meant and met in Christ and given to you and to me in an intimate way. The symbolic nature of the ceremonial law is culminated in Christ who tells you what you are and and what what God is to you. He is the celestial poet who grounds his truth in each one of our lives. And you look at these dull things, or at least these seemingly dull things, and you begin to juxtapose them with the figure of Christ. So whenever I read the Old Testament, and I read these things like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I think, what am I supposed to get out of this? I look at it through the lens of what's coming in the, in the future, Jesus is coming, you can see so many beauties in it, so many beautiful things. Like why in the world does the Bible have these laws about don't you know, mix your, your, your linens, don't mix your threads, don't use different materials on your clothes? Why is that? Because the Hebrews were meant to be set apart and not mixed with the pagans around them. They were meant to be the people through whom the Messiah would come, who wouldn't just save the Hebrews, but would save all those other people as well. So there's a symbol, even even in these seemingly silly, what someone would say is silly law. It's not so silly after all, because it's all got a point to it. All of Scripture points in the arrow of the cross, even these things that you think don't have anything to do with it. They do have something to do with it, something very profound and beautiful. This is what it means for the Bible to be living and active. You get it in Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living and active, which means that these old things, these things that seem to be just for those people and don't really apply to me, some of them don't apply to us, and we sort of make them apply to us in our daily lives, but the symbols, the the ideas, the gestures, the things that it's talking about in terms of who God actually is, that does apply to us because it's living and active. So when you read these things and you think I'm just getting through it, I have my little uh, one-year devotional. I told myself on January 1st, I would read the Bible every single year. and I have my one-year devotional. I want to get through these chapters so I can get to the cool stuff like Joshua and, you know, Um, judges and eventually get to the Psalms and Job and all these things where stuff happens. That's not what the Bible, you're not taking a sort of a necessary pause. You're not slugging through it. try to see the beauty and the subtlety of it and what's in it. These are timeless truths. They weren't just something that was just, you know, kind of interesting or that's how they did things back then. They're timeless truths. And these timeless truths can speak to you sometimes in ways that are surprising. And what I mean by this is there are times when you read things that seem incredibly like, what the heck was that for? And then in your life, it suddenly pops up and you realize that's what that was for in terms of my own life. Now, I want to be careful here. What I don't mean is that scripture is always context dependent. In other words, the truth of scripture do not depend on your experience. Your experience can be augmented. It can be impacted by scripture, but your experience does not dictate what scripture meant. Got to be very careful there. But it does impact us all the time. Let me give you an example of what I mean. My my, my colleague, Stuart McAllister, um, before he joined RZIM, spent a lot of time smuggling Bibles under the Iron Curtain. Back when the Soviet Union was reigning strong, the heavily atheistic, intentionally non-Christian, Soviet Union, and it controlled all these countries in Eastern Europe, and there was the Iron Curtain, you know, the so-called Iron Curtain, where you couldn't get past it, it was a block. You could not get past it. Well, he spent a lot of time smuggling Bibles, and he would hide them in the wheel wells of vans and all these things. When he would go into these countries, they would stop him at the gates, and they would say, what do you have with you? And they would give a description of generally what they have, and they'd say, do you have guns? Do you have drugs? Do you have Bibles? That's an interesting thing to couple those. <laughs> Drugs, guns, and Bibles. We don't want any of these things polluting our people, in other words, and of course he did have the Bibles and he would smuggle smuggle them in and got arrested for it. But take that as your backdrop now, and then fast forward many, many years, and here I am, I'm sitting in a backyard at a barbecue, and my, my kids are running around at this beautiful pool a friend of ours has, and uh, there's this guy sitting next to me, and my my youngest daughter, who, um, she's our last one, but she's always first in line kind of a a kid. Um, uh, She runs and she does some kind of screamy backflip thing into the pool. And this guy sitting next to me, who I don't know, says, is that your daughter? I said, yeah. He says, what's your name? I said, Nadia. I said, Nadia, aren't you guys Lebanese? I'm like, yeah. It's like, that's a Russian name. I'm like, well, it travels. I mean, it's, you know, it's Russian but it's also I've, Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, I know that there are people in Hispanic communities who are named Nadia, and of course, in Arabic communities. And it means different things in different countries. It goes, that's fascinating that her name is Nadia. Um, do you know what it means in Russian? I said, no. He says, well, the, the real name is Nadiajda. Nadiajda means hope. I go, that's interesting, that's fascinating. So I start talking to him, I said, where are you from? He said, well, I'm from Belarus, and I used to live there during the Soviet Union while it was a Soviet Bloc, and, uh, one of the Soviet republics, and I used to live there, so what was that like? So I was so hostile to all things, you know, Christian or Western and lots of oppression, lots and lots of oppression on, these, on this issue. I said, really? I said, um, so what was it like living there? And he says, well, we often would keep things alive in terms of our, in terms of faith in little secret ways. He says, you know, it's funny, you say your, your daughter's name is Nadia, because Nadiajda is what her name is in, is in, is in Russian. He told me this, do you know what the three most popular names for girls were in the Soviet Union? The three most popular names were Vera, Nadiashda, and Lubov. faith, hope, and love. In a country where it was purposely, where Stalin and Lenin tried to stamp out anything Christian, The Word of God was so powerfully burned and seared into the souls of the Russians that they kept the scriptures alive in the names of their daughters. It is not a curious historical book, it changes things tremendously. And I remember sitting there looking at him and thinking, this is not a casual fact, this is enormous. This is the power of this scripture. Ravi has often said, the Bible rises up to outlive its pallbearers. I think it's true, Russia is now open to the gospel, seemingly closed off a little bit more than it used to be, but it persists, the gospel persists, even in those times. And I'm sure you've had instances where something, if you're a Christian and you've read something in the scriptures, maybe even a long time ago, that something happens to you and you think, oh my goodness, that verse, I mean, the reason why, if you're not a Christian, by the way, the reason why everyone was gasping that faith, hope, and love were the three most popular names, lest it be lost on you, in 1 Corinthians 13, the quintessential love chapter read at every single wedding you'll ever go to. (laughs) Paul says, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These three things remain. Can you? That's this delicious poetry right there. These three things remain. And in Russia, where the Bible was considered illegal, those three things remained. That's just amazing. And you see that sometimes when you're in your darkest despair, the scriptures can come live and enliven to you. When you read the story of the disciples as they're walking on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, Jesus was just crucified. The disciples are all scattered. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's going on. And there's two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks up. Now, of course, his appearance is hidden from them. They don't know that it's him. And he's asking, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, don't you know what's happened? And it's just hysterical because, yeah, he knows. They don't know, but he does. And they're like, we thought this guy was the Christ. We thought This is this the guy who's going to deliver us from Rome. This was the guy. And then he died. And then Jesus begins to explain to them from Genesis all the way up until their time, that this is what the Christ must do, that God himself must break into history and he must die for the sake of the people and then be raised up again. And then when he broke bread, he did that familiar thing of breaking bread, that's when they suddenly saw who he was. But you know what's interesting? Before their experience of seeing Jesus break the bread and seeing who he was, they, they said, was our heart not burning inside of us when we heard him explain the scriptures? So before their experience of seeing the, the, the risen Jesus, they had the scriptures confirmed to them. Amazing how that itself can speak to us. And maybe you've had that experience in your life. Maybe that's been there. You know, I look at the, the poetry of the Bible and see its credibility through and through, and how it factors into some of the important parts of human history, including and especially the resurrection. You know, the Hebrew word for glory, you know what it means? It means heavy. The word "glory" means weight, weightiness. That's what it means. And you look at that incident in John chapter twenty, when Jesus, when Thomas the doubter is sitting there, and he's saying, "I will not believe unless I see Jesus risen." And I put my fingers in his nail scars and in the side of his flesh. He will not believe until then. His brothers and sisters in the Lord have all seen it, and he's he's got the evidence because he's got eyewitness testimony. All these people who he's worked with for three years and who he has lived with and suffered with, all of them say in independent attestations, they say, we all saw him in different places in different times. Why won't you believe it's Thomas? And he's like, no, I will not believe. I have no idea why Thomas was such a doubter at that particular moment. But Jesus doesn't tell him, your doubts are condemning you to hell. He doesn't say, go away, sinner. You know what he does? He walks through a locked door. And he, the first thing he says to him is, shalom alachem peace be unto you, he shows him the scars and says, Thomas, peace be unto you. My resurrection is your peace. And Thomas falls to his knees. Now, the reason why I tell you the story is not just because Thomas, once he saw that, became a lion for the faith and went to India and was martyred there as he was preaching the gospel. It's that Jesus walked through a locked door. That little subtlety, C.S. Lewis posits it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. The Hebrew word for glory is weight. Maybe the reason why Jesus in his post-resurrection body, his glorified physical body, could walk through a locked door is because he was glorified, he was so heavy that the rest of the world was like smoke to him. And that's the body you're going to have. This world is vaporous compared to the physicality and the depth and the glory of the life to come. You see, oftentimes when we gloss over familiar passages, we fail to see the beauty and the poetry that's endemic to these things. Now, let me suggest this to you as well. The Word of God and God the Word. The Bible is the Word of God about God the Word made flesh. And God the Word made flesh walks through a locked door. It was this incarnation... This inspiration of God as incarnational, as coming into human history, that caused St. Augustine to pen these words when he said this. He said that God so loved the world that he became a man in time, though through him all times were made. He became man who made man. He was carried by hands that he himself fashioned. He was born of a woman that he himself created. He cried in a manger in wordless infancy, he the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. He cried a babe in wordless infancy, God the Word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. In other words, what he's saying is this. You and I can speak because there's a God. God the Word. Otherwise, you know what you are and I am, if there is no God? You are a bag of chemicals. That's what you are. You're just an amoeba that does more sophisticated things than other amoeba do, and so am I, and we bump into each other. (laughs) You can't have science with that. You can't have logic, you can't have history, you can't have poetry without that. And Augustine says that the very fact of God invading our world and his reality gives you and I the ability to speak without whom we would be mute. And yet he comes and lies in a manger in wordless infancy. But God the Word is so weighted with glory in his resurrection that he breezes through a locked wooden door to meet his, his, his disciples. And on the names of Russian daughters, he walks right through an iron curtain, so weighted in glory. These are the kind of things about who God is that you encounter when you engage the Bible, not just read the Bible. But the second thing you find is who you are and what God intends for you and for me. I was at an open forum a number of years ago and uh, it was on science and faith. And I was giving, a friend of mine actually was giving a talk on science and faith. And I was there for the Q&A part. He did a very, very good job. But there was a, we were there with a lot of skeptics in the room. And a guy gets up in the back and he says, you know, the problem with this whole thing is that you're talking about all these scientists who, who were believers in God. And that's fine. But the reality is, is that they were believers in God despite their science, not because of their science or even vice versa. And I said, well, I think that's true, really. I think that people like Pascal and people like... Kepler and all these things, they actually pursued science because they were believers in God, not the other way around. They didn't pursue science despite their belief in God. He says, no, 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 no. Science is the pursuit of truth and religion is this gap stopper. You know, if you don't know how lightning uh, happens, you attribute it to the gods and you just put a god or of some kind in the gap of your knowledge. If you don't know how tornadoes are formed, you stick God in there. If you don't know how this, you stick God in there. I remember him saying that, I was thinking to myself, I don't know of one Christian who thinks that way. But for some reason, people think that Christians think that way. Maybe there are some. I don't know them. But I said, you know, it's interesting you say this. In other words, what you're saying is that, he said this outright, he said, faith is a science stopper. It it keeps us from pursuing the natural world and from getting knowledge. But you know, that's interesting, because the Bible doesn't say that. It says exactly the opposite of what you just said. Because it infuses you and me with the dignity of having rationality, of being able to explore the world. I said, read Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. What does it say there? It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. In other words, God conceals things from us, not so that we never know them, but so that we can discover them and delight in the discovery. The process itself is delightful. I was sitting at a table, and my young son, my, now he's 14, but when he was I can't remember how, he was super young. He was sitting next to me, and my wife was sitting in corner at the table. My wife and I are talking. Now, we got my son this, like, this like Spider-Man laptop-y thing. You know, it's one of those speaking spells, but it's just like a laptop to fool the kid and think he's got a computer. Um, <laughs> and he's just sitting there playing with it. He loved letters and numbers and all that kind of stuff, so I bought him all the letters and numbers, things you could ever want. First time dad, I flood the kid with toys, right? Well, so we're sitting there, and my wife and I are talking, and then I hear this... Cat. What the heck was that? I look over, and on the screen, sure enough, three letters C A T. He said, "Cat." I'm like, "Did you just read that?" And he's looking at me, and he's all smiley. And I hit the next word button, and it's fat F A T. He goes, "Fat." I'm like, "Oh my goodness, he just read. My son just read." I hit the next button, bat. You know, rat. I'm like, "What other words rhyme with this?" Come on, we hit bat, cat, rat, bat. He's just going crazy, and he's just squealing with delight. He is so delighted at the discovery he's making. But what's interesting was, of the two of us, I was far more delighted than he was. (laughs) Far more delighted than he was. That's why God delights in our discoveries more than we delight in our discoveries. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. He doesn't spoon-feed you so that you don't discover. He hides from you so that you engage in the discovery process of searching out the artistry that is this world. because he invests you and me with dignity. You are invested with a dignity that no other worldview tells you about. No other world tells you about this. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where we're told that we are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. First of all, I want you to notice something. This speaks, the Bible is your eternal contemporary. It's old and it's contemporary all at the same time. We are in the midst of a Me Too movement where women are standing up and saying, we are sick and tired of being denigrated for being women, and we're sick and tired of the power struggle. And that's interesting because they would often claim the Bible is the very document that allows men to dominate women. And in the beginning of the Bible, it says, in. Are my, in God's image, he created them, male and female. You are, fe, you are in God's image in your femaleness. You are in God's image in your maleness. He is father and son. Yet he longs to gather Jerusalem under his wings as a, as a hen longs to gather her chicks under her wings. You see this imagery over and over again where God uses both feminine and masculine imagery to describe who he is. The male is as much and no more made in God's image as every female, and you don't get that eventually in the Jesus days. You get that in Genesis chapter one, and the word, and the word for helpmate, the word for helpmate to describe Eve, is not like this little maidservant girl that, that runs around cleaning up after Adam. That word, that's, uh, that uh, uh, describes Eve, that's the same word God uses for Himself as the one who helps humanity. It's not a menial job, it's an office that she's given. It's the eternal contemporary over and over again. We are seen to be made in God's image. Islam will not tell you that. Hinduism won't tell you that. Buddhism won't tell you that. And atheism certainly won't tell you that. Lawrence Krauss tells you and tells me that we are the flotsam and jetsam of the universe. An atheist astrophysicist, when he was asked what humanity is, he said, we are a bit of cosmic pollution, completely irrelevant. The Bible tells you something different. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, the Bible uses a word for you. It says, we are his workmanship. You know what the word is in Greek? It's poema. You know what word we get from that? Poem. You are literally his poem. You are his poem. So you see this glorious nature that God has infused into us. But then also you see the reality of the world too. You see the reality of what we are too. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 is not a compliment to every human being. It's exactly the opposite. For out of the heart, every single heart, comes uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, slander, false testimony out of your heart and out of my heart. Isn't that interesting that the Bible tells you you're made in God's image, yet we have these horrible things that come out of our heart and the, the Bible says the, heart, the human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So it has these seemingly paradoxical things about it, but what I love about the Bible and why I think it's credible above all other books among the many reasons I think this, is that the Bible tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. If I were to sell you something, if I were to try to sell you a worldview, what would I tell you? I would tell you either that you are a god in embryo, as Hinduism says, that you are divine internally, and if you just work out your karma through the cycle of death and rebirth and enlightenment and do whatever it takes to become enlightened, you will eventually leave the ethereal plane or the, 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 um, the earthly plane and become part of the, uh, the impersonal absolute of the universe. You are divine, I would tell you that. Or I'd tell you what Buddha said, that really you're just in a crushing of karma and the self is an illusion and your goal is to be extinguished, but you can do that through good works and good actions and good deeds and good thoughts, because you have the capability of doing that. I would tell you what Islam tells you, that if you do enough good things, you will eventually please God. Or I even tell you what atheism tells you, that human beings are inherently uh, uh, ingenious and we will eventually create a Star Trek like existence for ourselves. Do you see what's going on there? I've often said, and it's true, all religious systems are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. It's reversed, though. It's a little different, though, in one aspect. All religions are actually fundamentally the same in one way, except for Christianity. Every system of belief tells you that you can save you. Christianity says you are in need of a savior. And that's not something that you and I want to hear. I was sitting across from a very well-known uh, well, not very well-known. He was a very thoughtful, by the way, skeptic. He's a secular humanist ordained minister, which is, I think, weird. Um, but and who ordains them, right? I mean, um, but he, he can perform weddings and funerals and all, a very, very thoughtful guy, by the way. We're sitting across the table, and he said, I said to him, um, what's your biggest hang up with Christianity? He goes, oh, easy, it's arrogance. I'm like, oh, that was fast. Um, I said, not you, Abdul." I'm like, oh, thank you, I think. Um, <clears throat> well, do tell. He says, well, you guys think that you have the lock on truth, that your way is the only way, every other religion is going to hell, that you guys are special, and you guys get the one revelation that no one else gets, and that seems at the height of arrogance to me. Like, that's fascinating. I said, aside from being a woeful misunderstanding of the gospel, um, let me ask you a question. You're a secular humanist minister. Do you know, do you you agree with the Secular Humanist Manifesto 3? Now, there's a bunch of manifestos. The third one is probably one of the most popular ones. He said, yeah. I know what it says. I said, do you agree with it? He said, yeah. I said, well, I have part of it memorized, so let me think, uh, get your opinion on this. It says that a human beings have the ability and the responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that ascribe to the greater good of all. Do you agree with that? He says, yeah. I said, so you have the ability and the responsibility to lead an ethical life that aspires to the greater good of all? That ability is in you? He said, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. The gospel tells me that I'm a sinner that I will seek my own way, that eventually, that me, I'm a sinner, my kids are sinners, you're a sinner, my wife's a sinner, that there's good in us, but eventually we will seek our own way, and we need someone who's not us to save us from us. I believe in him, but you believe in you. Who's arrogant? (laughs) Now, now we had a good relationship, and we still do. But the point of this is is that oftentimes people misunderstand what the Bible is actually saying. Everyone knows that they're in trouble. Everyone knows there's a shortcoming, and the Bible tells us the straight dope, as it were. It doesn't tell you what you want to hear. Jesus is not trying to sell you something. He's trying to save you from something. He's telling you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. It was Blaise Pascal who pointed out this dichotomy of the human nature that we are Horrible sinners, yet made in God's image. And he says, what a chimera is man, what a novelty, a monster, a chaos, a contradiction, a prodigy, judge of all things, an imbecile worm, depository of truth, and sewer of error and doubt, the glory and shame of the universe. That's us. And that's obviously us. And the Bible describes us that way. And it describes, the Bible actually describes many of the heroes of the faith that way. It describes biblical figures. I don't like using biblical characters as a, because characters sound like it's a fictional story. Moses was not a character, he was a figure. He was actually a historical person. But it describes these people in very flawed ways. They're extremely flawed. As a lawyer, I can tell you this. That does a, 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 a mark in its favor. It actually shows its authenticity. There's a thing called the principle of embarrassment in historical uh, study. If a document contains embarrassing facts about its main characters and about its main figures and about its story, then that's more likely to be true because legends typically go from uh, bland stories to wildly embellished stories. But these stories, every one of the prophets, it seems, uh, except for, of course, Jesus himself, is deeply flawed. The disciples themselves, writing an account of what they saw and what they did, they record their own flaws. If you were making it up, you wouldn't make up how terrible you were. Or how dull you were sometimes and dim. You would say, I was brilliant, I was the one. Not the pride and arrogance you see there. The fact that it actually includes these embarrassing details goes towards its credibility. And you don't get this with a casual reading of the Bible, but with an engagement, you get it. But what it all shows me, it all comes down to this, it really does, friends, and I'll close in a few minutes on this. Who God is, who we are. The fact that we are a contradiction and we struggle with the contradiction over and over again causes us tremendous amounts of anxiety. It did for Peter, it did for Paul, it did for all the prophets of old and it does for you and for me. Yet we are his poem. How does this all fit together? We strive to find out who we actually are and what we actually are. And one of the worst things that can happen to you is that you're not understood is that no one really understands who you are, what you struggle with, and the fact that you don't want to be you know, struggling with whatever, the, whatever your sin might be, whatever that thing that besets you is. But God himself knows. He talks about it in his word. You are still made in his image no matter what you've done. You cannot take that image from yourself. It will not go away. It's there. But we've marred it. We've scarred it and now Christ has come to fix it, because he understands. That poem by Thomas Bracken comes to mind, Not Understood. Not understood, we move along asunder. Uh, our paths grow wider as the seasons creep. Along the years, we marvel and we wonder why life is life and then we fall asleep. Not understood. Not understood, how many breasts are aching? How many lonely spirits pass away? How many? Lonely hearts are breaking. How many noble spirits pass away, not understood? And then he says this, O God, that men would see a little clearer, or at least judge less harshly when they cannot see. O God, that men would draw a little nearer to one another. They would draw nearer to thee and be understood. God understands you, sometimes more uncomfortably than you'd like, but he redeems as well. All of this, every single thing we're talking about, from the Levitical law that tells you about how valuable you are, to the very first words in Genesis that tell you that you're being made in God's image, to the fact that God returns to his people over and over and over again. And the objection has come over and over again the God of the Old Testament is this judgmental, very angry, very wrathful God. Yet you see over and over again in the Old Testament that God judges people for their sins, but then returns to them and says, please come back to me. If he pleads for them to come back, and then redeems them again and again and again and again. That's not a God of wrath. I'm sorry. That's a God of mercy. What's it all pointing to? All this poetry of history woven together points to one point in history. And this is the ultimate poetry. This I'll close and then we'll pray. This little insignificant hill in this rotten outpost in the Roman Empire where this peasant Jewish guy says, I'm the Light of the world, I come to give my life as a ransom for many. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I have the power to raise it back up again. He dies on this cross on a Roman torture device. Here's the poetry. Here it is. The word crucifixion has as its root word, the Latin word crux. Do you know what that means? What a crux actually is? A crux is the place where all things come together and turn, the crux of the issue, the crux of the fulcrum. How poetic is it that the cross is the place where everything converges and turns for you and for me? He dies there. In contradistinction to what Lawrence Krauss says when he says you are a bit of cosmic pollution, completely, cosmically speaking, completely irrelevant, the cross tells you and tells me that God is affected by your moral choices. That is an infusion of dignity. When he tells you that your moral choices affect him, both positively and negatively, that's telling you and telling me that the things you do echo into eternity. That's incredible dignity infused to you, but it also tells you who God is, that he is the one who must judge the sin, but also must forgive the sinner. He, is the, he, 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 he melds the two things together. The cross is where he judges sin and forgives it at the same time. Who but the Lord of glory can do that? You are not irrelevant. The cross tells me and tells you that your actions are relevant to God. You know, we often try to make the message relevant to the people. You know, come to church. It's really relevant, whatever that means. You know what the the, the reality of church is? The reality of church is not that the message is relevant to you. The message is that you are relevant to the divine. That's who he is. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. The word of God is the revelation of God, the word made flesh, and he did that to infuse you and me with dignity and to magnify himself and show his glory. That's the credibility of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the word made flesh. Thank you for not abandoning us to ourselves. Thank you, Father, for doing what you did and experiencing the pain of of that Forsakenness, where you forsook your son and he had to feel that forsakenness for our sake. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for showing us the beauty of your word, of what was revealed to us. I pray, Lord, that for there are those here who might be struggling with not being understood, who might be struggling with not understanding you, that they engage your word. Read it tonight. Read it tomorrow. Don't just make it the thing i got to check off today, but engage with the word you've given to us. This is what tells us who you are and who we are. And may we be all the better for it. May we delight in your word. May we bathe our minds in your truth. And have our hearts be washed once again. Amen.